Are you cold? Still cold? It's a big jacket. How are you guys doing? Wow, that good, huh? Don't, don't, all, don't everybody answer all at once. Good. You're good? I'm glad you're good. Good, good. Anybody bad? You're just cold. You told me you were cold, right? All right, well, I'll get through this quick so that you can go back to your seats where maybe it's warmer. I don't know. Yeah, I have these here. These are going to be our big part of what we're trying to do this year. Do you guys know what these are? Chains. Class. So, so it's a chain like this, but if I take that one off, what do we call that? It does look like a paper clip, doesn't it? It's not a paper clip. We just use the word link, right? It does, right? Because when you put a bunch of links together, it forms a chain. So what do you think, you know, what if I was to use this, let's say, to go fishing with? That sounds weird. But let's say this is what I had to go fishing with. Do you think I could catch a fish with this? Why not? It would need to be longer, wouldn't it? We would need, so what would we need to make this longer? We would need more of these to go on, and it would get longer and longer and longer. And I still don't know if that would catch a fish, but it would at least need to be longer, right? So this year, what we want to focus on as a church is how, if you think about it, we are all kind of like one of these links. But the strength of the church, is it found in just me or just you? It's all of us, right? It's, it's the longer we make this, the stronger our church becomes. Now here's what I want to invite you guys to, okay? Sometimes on Sunday mornings you sit around, and I understand, you think this is more for adults than it is me, but this is for you too, because you guys get to help us link just like everyone else so at the end of the service, if you're paying attention, I'm going to tell you how you can help participate and make First Baptist the longest chain we can make it, okay? All right, you guys keep that in mind and go back to your seats. Go sit by your mom, that'll be great. And yeah, hold on to it because we'll come back to it at the end of the service. I'm not hiding from you, I'm just moving this just a little bit. And I understand not everyone will see everything. I apologize. You'll be okay. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Ephesians chapter 1. Any of you guys remember 2012? That was a long time ago. Haley and I uh, started dating in 2012. That's when we officially, I mean, we met in middle school. I've showed that picture. I don't need to show it again. But we officially started dating in 2012. Uh, I was a sophomore in college, and she and her sister uh, were getting ready to head on a, a couple-week-long mission trip to Nairobi, Kenya, to help serve in an orphanage there. And I've always kind of loved that our relationship really kind of took root and blossomed out of a mission trip for her. Uh, that was what sh was the original launch for her extending a conversation. It wasn't just to me. I like to pretend it was to me. It was a mass Facebook message that I was the only one that responded to. Uh, but I'm married to her now, so what are you going to do about that? But that all started because she was raising money for this trip to Kenya. And so she had gone to this, this orphanage. She went and lived and, and helped out there uh, with this kind of ministry that her and her family had already had a partnership with for, for a while. In fact, while she was there, her cousin was engaged to the man who was second in charge there at, at the orphanage and was going to get married. And then they even wound up building a school extension like a high school with that orphanage that's named after Haley's grandmother. And so from that mission trip sprouted not only my relationship with my wife, but a rather substantial relationship with the man who was in charge of the orphanage. His, his name's Tom. And uh, Tom was really good at keeping the orphanage funded 
because usually once to twice a year, he would come over to the States, and he would connect with and go from church to church and raise money that he would send back to that orphanage. And uh, once Haley and I started dating, and he found that uh, he could get a connection in Tennessee, he reached out to me and said, hey, Philip, I don't have any connections in Tennessee. Would you be willing to help me connect with churches in that area? Uh, I would really love to come and see about what, what churches and how we could partner with orphanage ministry there. And at that time, I had just started pastoring at Barker's Chapel Baptist Church. They had given me a parsonage to live in. And I said, absolutely, Tom, not only that, but why don't you and his wife and his two little children were coming with him, why don't you guys come? I have some extra rooms in this parsonage that are just empty. You guys move in. Make this your home space. Uh, I gave him a list of pastors and churches that I knew personally. You know, call these people, reach out to them. And we spent a couple months there where I introduced his two young children to the joys of uh, mixing vanilla coffee creamer with milk to make vanilla milk. You ever? They loved that, which I don't know what four-year-old wouldn't, um, the joys of cracking pecans and eating pecans, and they introduced me to the joy of native Kenyan food called chapati and this flatbread, and it was delicious. Most days, his wife would stay home and homeschool their two little kids. Uh, he would go and connect with churches, and I would go to class, and that was kind of the model that we had working. And then once he felt as if he had made sufficient communications and connections there uh, in West Tennessee, he asked me if I had any other connections in Middle Tennessee, and of course that's where my folks lived, and so I connected him and Anna uh, up with my parents, and they went and they moved in there and started doing the same in Middle Tennessee, uh, and, and over time they headed back to Africa, and I graduated and moved to New Mexico, got married, started pastoring at uh, First Baptist Socorro, and he and I would catch up from time to time, and we're even in the early stages of planning to host him and a choir from that orphanage at First Baptist Socorro until one day I got a call from Haley's dad. And Haley's dad called me and said, hey, have you, have you heard about Tom? I was like, no, is, is everything okay? What's, what's the matter? He goes, well, health-wise, he's fine, uh, but, but we recently had some friends go and spend about a month in Kenya, and they saw some concerning financial patterns. Uh, upon further investigation, they found not only a pattern of financial corruption, but also that he had had several affairs, and at least one biological child in the States when he would come to the States. And uh, after calling him to repentance, he wouldn't, and calling to some structural changes, he, he refused. And so we have decided to go ahead and pull our funding and cut communication with him altogether, and I would suggest you and your church do the same. And you probably should go ahead and call those conversations and those connections you made in Tennessee and let them know. Ever uh, made that phone call? It's really awkward. Hey, it turns out the guy that I had trusted to drive my car and live in my house, to live with my parents, to host my wife on the other side of the globe, actually isn't the man he portrayed himself to be. So you can only then imagine the awkwardness a couple months ago when Marion walked into my office and said, hey, there's two gentlemen here. Uh, that are wanting to talk with the pastor about some connections and missions projects possible, and into my office walk, walked Tom. He did not stick around very long. Uh, furthermore, I don't think he stuck around Portalis very long either. Now, in the grand scheme of things, it's a very small, insignificant story. But it's a personal anecdote for me of a much bigger reality that I think my generation has grown up with. Because when I say names like Bill Hybels 
or Mark Driscoll or Art Azzurdi or Carl Lentz or Jimmy Swaggard. Men that stood in pulpits preaching to crowds bigger than the population of Portales. Some of whom I read their books and I listened to their sermons and I tried to absorb everything they had to say because, man, they were getting it and I thought they were reaching people all to find out that they were wrecked by catastrophic moral failures. And that's not including those who pretty much just denounced their faith and their own and just exited stage right. Rob Bell, Joshua Harris, Rachel Hollis, YouTube stars Rhett and Link, if you watch Good Mythical Morning on YouTube. People who may not have necessarily had catastrophic moral failings, but people who either noted or experienced or maybe perpetuated some moral scandal of the church and then chose to exit bringing droves of people with them. And you can place the blame wherever you want and call it justified or unjustified, celebrate the growing trend of deconstructionism or critique it. I'm really unconcerned with all of that. All I want to point out is the reality that I grew up and a lot of my friends have grown up in. The reality that has now created what I'm calling this uh, reality of systematic suspicion. That there seems to be more and more in my generation of people that look at systems and they look at things and the general response is, I can't trust any of it, so I'm not going to participate in any of it. Here's some data just to show you, and I know I've done data the last two weeks, but uh, this one's from 2018, so it's a little bit uh, old now in terms of how data goes, but it's a question uh, where Pew Research was asking uh, about how much people trust. So if we go to the next picture slide there. Uh, if you notice there at the bottom, uh, it says most people can't be trusted. That's the little part I have highlighted. So this was a question posed on a survey, and then it was asked, do you agree or do you disagree? And this is the percentage of the people who agree with that statement. So most people can't be trusted, agree or disagree, and it's broken down in terms of age group. So when you break this down in terms of those who are 65 and older, only just under 30% of people agree with that, meaning the vast majority of people 65 years and older tend to think most people can be trusted. This is why a lot of times um, there's, there's like scam awareness things and seminars to help train because I grew up with the opposite. Because for my generation, it's, and by the way, I was 18 to 29 in 2018, so I get to still say that's my generation, even though I'm over 30 now. 60% um, said they agree. Did you see the significant change in that? That, that a lot of uh, older people had said, oh, people can be trusted. It's like some 70%. That has now dropped to 40% think that people can be trusted just on a general basis. And it doesn't seem to be getting better with the generation underneath my generation, the Gen Z. This is a study from Gallup just this last year about can, can you trust things. So next slide. And what I want you to focus on with this one, if you can see it, is just that middle column of Gen Z that's youth aged 18 to 26. So people in our culture, 18 to 26, they were asked to give on a sliding scale with zero meaning you cannot trust this entity to 100 meaning you can totally trust them, how much they trust certain entities. And so there's a couple ones just to point out. You'll see on there the criminal justice system. Only 18% of Gen Z say that they trust the criminal justice system. Um, Congress is 10%. That's the average for that one. 
The presidency is 13%. The news is only 14%. Do you see the abysmally low numbers of how much my generation and the upcoming generation tend to trust things? Now, on the surface, this may not seem all that important or relevant, but it poses a rather unique uh, challenge to the modern church. Because in generations prior, especially in the American church, there was this kind of perceived respect and dignity that was granted to the church just because it was the church, even by people that weren't really into the whole Jesus thing. So even just as recently as like the 90s, you kind of had the grunge movement. And, uh, but if you went back and you told someone, well, I, I really, I, I follow Jesus. I follow his way of life. I think he's incredible, and I want my life to look like Jesus' life. There may be some people that disagree with you, that they don't want to do that. But the general response would be something along the lines of, wow, I mean, I, I totally respect your heart and desire in that. I mean, I, I couldn't do that, but I really believe that people like you make the world better. Thank you. I'm glad we have that. And now just saying it, it almost feels like sarcasm coming out of my mouth because people don't respond that way anymore. And see, the problem was when that was the reality surrounding the church, the focus of the church got to be this kind of systematic top-down focus because the general consensus was most everyone already trusted and believed in, so all we have to do is operate and we're good to go. In short, the church kind of looked something like this. All you did is you built your institution, and if you could build your institution to be attractive enough to, to kind of draw in people, then you were inevitably going to reach people. And so you just created tiers and gave people the chance to work their way up. But ultimately, there was just this magnetic pull that people would show up on Sunday mornings and they would more or less be agreeable to what you were saying and people would come. And then as your church kind of found the people that best fit into what the institution or the structure looked like, you would kind of work them up and you would say, okay, well, we're going to bring these people up and they're going to become members or they're going to become servant workers. They're going to be on our safety security team. They're going to work within that. And once they proved themselves there, you could work them up as Sunday school teachers or as Bible study leaders or prayer leaders. And eventually they could become deacons or they could become committee chairs, or they could become elders, whatever church model you were operating on. And what you would construct then is this kind of elite group of people within your church that aren't just in your church, but they're in your society as well, that are well-respected, they're good leaders, and they in themselves have this magnetic draw that would bring more and more people into the church. So the general assumption would go something along the lines of, as long as we can maintain this well, when things look attractive and leadership's where it's supposed to be, the inevitable result will be church growth. People will come in, they'll plug in, it will be good to go. So just for, for example, uh, this is a picture of, his name is uh, Eugene P. Aldridge, or E.P. Aldridge. Uh, he was pastor of First Baptist Church in 1908. Fascinating story if you've not read about uh, Aldridge. But Aldridge had, had come in to the church at a time where the church was split apart. There was a lot of problems and conflicts within the church. The church had no money. In fact, they couldn't even pay him. 
but he chose to come anyways. And so he lived in the parsonage at the time. First Baptist had a parsonage and then had to find another job while he pastored. So the inevitable other job that he landed at, he had previously worked with newspaper editing as he started the Portales News Tribune here in the early 1900s. In fact, he became substantial in moving Portales forward and becoming an incorporated town. He was known for running out brothels and saloons because I don't know if you know this, but we live in the Wild West quite literally. We're just not as wild as that anymore. And so he had all this influence in moving these people out, establishing Portales. He was hyper-influential in what it meant to live in and who we were as people living in Portales. This is a person that not only was he the pastor of First Baptist Portales, he was a local sage and expert, someone to go to in the community that was moving Portales forward. And that was just the way church worked back then. So it's particularly interesting now when I go to leadership portalis meetings and uh, someone says, well, what do you do? And I say, well, my name's Philip Smith. I'm the pastor of First Baptist Church. And their next question is, where's First Baptist Church? I've never heard of that church. Oh, it's the one on the main road you drive past. I don't think I've ever seen it before. Do you see the structural difference? That we've come to this time that it seems like less and less people really care about how this operates. You see, the problem is that this model presupposes that there will be this inevitable draw and trust among an upcoming generation that as long as we're here, people will show up and will continue to grow. And that just seems to not be happening. And the second problem is just simply that this is actually not the model of the gospel. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying this is bad, and I'll explain why in a little bit, that it's not a total deconstruct this. But it is not as if God resides up here on top of the mountain hoping that we can earn our way up to him. In fact, that is over and over again an alternative gospel, not the gospel, an anti-gospel. That's every other religion. God exists, and if you do all of these good things and look this way, then finally you'll get your approval. That's not how the gospel works. Now, please, please understand, none of this is to suggest that this model is bad. In fact, it's an absolute necessity of who we are and what we do. First Baptist Church, if you don't know, operates on almost a half million dollar annual budget every year, and that's given by many of you. And you deserve, if you're going to write checks and give money to the ministry of First Baptist here, you deserve to know that that money that you give is dealt with with integrity and diligence, and there's checks and balances, and that's what this is helping with in a lot of ways. So, so it's not that we do away with this model, but it's that we have to start reevaluating, refocusing, reimagining that what is the best way to reach Portalis. And if the upcoming generation is far too skeptical to even participate in this, is there another model that we can adopt and focus on that we might truly be a thriving, reaching, healthy church? If not this, then what? What is the model suggested, uh, not only by the Bible, but in direct relationship to the gospel of Jesus? And to talk about this, I want to take you to the book of Ephesians. And really all I want to do this morning is kind of take a really quick overview of the book. So let me just dive in, talk about a couple things here, and then we'll revisit what's the alternative, what's the focus for First Baptist this year. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 starts out with Paul just saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at 
Ephesus. Now, how many of your Bibles have a footnote after the word Ephesus? Footnotes there? If you go down and read your footnote, it'll probably say something along the lines of other manuscripts, or MSS, omit the phrase at Ephesus. You guys have that in your Bibles. Don't freak out. It's not a big problem. It's not because your Bible's broken or anything like that. When it comes to Bible translation and how we come about getting our translations, we do not have a single copy of Ephesians that's original to what Paul wrote. Um, And we don't really have very many unified copies close to the early church. Instead, what we do is we have a bunch of fragments of copies. And there are guys that are way smarter than me that, like, they geek out over taking all of these Greek manuscripts, piecing them together, looking at the paper, looking at the context to see which one's older, which one's newer. And they piece it all together. And when there comes situations where the Bible manuscripts disagree, and by the way, when they disagree, I don't mean, again, oh no, it's broken. I mean, when they disagree, it's little phrases like this. There are no major disagreements among manuscript differences. But it's some manuscripts don't include the phrase at Ephesus. But this one does. And that raises a particularly interesting point. So here's a quote from a commentary that says, The earliest and best New Testament manuscripts omit the phrase in Ephesus from 1-1, chapter 1, verse 1. It's quite possible then that this document was intended as a circular letter and that believers in Ephesus were not only intended, not the only intended audience. The contents of Ephesians seems to support such a theory. Meaning that when Paul writes a lot of his letters, he's going to address them, and usually what he does is he addresses particular churches dealing with particular problems. So this is why when we read in 1 Corinthians, when Paul will say things like, women, you need to keep your hair covered, and I don't permit a woman to speak but instead she need, in church, but instead she needs to go home and ask her husband. Uh, we don't start flat out applying that to First Baptist Portalis because we look at the context and say Paul is addressing a particular issue in the Corinthian church. However, if the book of Ephesus is not so much a direct quote to a particular church, but is one that's to be circulated, that means this book applies universally from Ephesus to Laodicea to 2023 Portalis. So what's the big idea that Paul's getting across here then? Well, two major sections of this book. The first is chapters 1 through 3. And in chapters 1 through 3, Paul is just giving this prayerful observation of how God has launched this new messianic movement. That starting with the Jewish people, then bringing that movement to the Gentiles, God has created this new unified family that he says, in Christ, it's a phrase he uses over and over, in Messiah, in Messiah, in Messiah. And then he moves in chapter 4 through the rest of the book, 4 through 6, into observational commands about how the church perpetuates this pattern outward as they live in relationship to one another. So, in short, the first part is who we all are because of Jesus. The second part is how we all act because of Jesus. By the way, there's way more density into all of this than what we have time for. But let me just highlight some key points, uh, starting out in chapter 1, particularly focus on the pronouns that Paul uses in in this. So again, I'm going to skip quickly, but just just hang with me as tight as you can. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our, note that word, our, Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavens, and then there's that phrase, in Christ. So he has blessed us, and he's going to continue on, verse 4, for he chose us, and the question we have to ask then is, who's us? And if we're not careful, I think what we end up doing is we read these plural pronouns, we, us, our, 
as this kind of generic address of Christians. And what Paul's talking about here is us Christians, we Christians, our Christians. And then we start layering over doctrines within that model that starts to get complicated really quickly. And so I would just say pump, pump the brakes really quick on that and keep reading. So he goes down to verse 7 and he says, In him we have redemption. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will. In him, verse 11, we also received an inheritance. And he goes and goes. And then all of a sudden in verse 13 there's a shift. So he's been us, we, our, us, us, we. And then in verse 13, Paul shifts and he says, In him you also, and this is again, remember the plural you, y'all also. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you heard the words of the truth of the gospel of your all's salvation, when you all believed. And we jump down to verse 16. That's, Paul says, I never stop giving thanks for y'all, for you all. So if we presuppose that the first section is a universal reference to Christians, then why is Paul differentiating himself here in the second part of this text? Well, it seems that Paul is drawing an implicit distinction between the we, us, and the you, y'all in this. If we want to find that further, he actually ends up defining it in chapter 2. So go to chapter 2 and look at verse 11. Where he says, so then, remember that at one time, and he gives the word you again, y'all, were Gentiles in the flesh. And if that's not clear enough, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, y'all, you, who were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, so if the you, Paul implicitly says, is the Gentiles, then the opening we, us, is in reference to the Jewish people. This is something that Paul's picked up on, and he does over and over again. It's not a say on what's greater and what's worse. It's simply an observation of the means by which God has reached out into the world through the Messiah. So in Romans 1.16, Paul can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to save us all, first to the Jew than to the Gentile. That the means by which God reaches into the world is through Jewish people. And then through them begins to reach the Gentile people. And I mention all of that just to draw you to the exact point that Paul draws us to in chapter 2, verse 14. He's been we, 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 but you, you. And then he goes to verse 14 in chapter 2 and he says this. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. He goes on to say in verse 15 at the end part of that, so that he might, that Jesus would create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did that so that he might reconcile both God in one body through the cross, which he put hostility to death. When Paul looks at the generic structure, meaning the general means by which churches should function and reach and thrive, he sees a church birthed out of connections, not a church birthed out of structure or systematic organization. Do you see what I mean by that? There is no call for the Gentiles to fall into the systematic observances of Jewish culture. 
Nor is there a call for Jews to abandon their systematic Jewish culture for something else entirely. Rather, Paul is observing a more organic, intrinsic reality for how the church is supposed to operate. So if, if we were to draw this out, it, it would look something like this. In the Jewish world, you have this very center hub that we'll just call God, or Yahweh is who they would have called him. And they had a community totally connected to Yahweh. And every person had a different job, but there was this intrinsic connection between their career, their job, and their faith. So this community of people connected directly to Yahweh. But it wasn't just that they were connected to Yahweh. They were also intrinsically connected to one another. So they would work together and they would be able to define, you know, who's the fisherman and who grows and the crops for food, who raises the sheep for sacrifices. And they would continue to draw these relationships to one another. I've got to make sure I'm getting all my lines drawn here right. To one another so that there was this systematic connection between God and the Jewish people. Do you see this? It's pretty apparent in the Jewish culture. But then what happens, what Paul observes, is that when Jesus comes onto the scene, when the Messiah arrives, Jesus is not just some man that claims to know a little bit more about God than what most people know. Jesus very fully makes the claim that he is not just a man, but he is actually fully God. That Jesus now becomes the full revelation of who Yahweh is in flesh, and begins to then call life to look differently. So Jesus now is the center point when Jews understand correctly in Paul's mind of who God is that binds them together. But what Jesus does is takes this band that existed around this community and he obliterates it, opening the band up to more people. Because you actually have out here these people that are far outside of the promises of the Torah. And yet Jesus says, but I want them to be connected to me too. And so all of these people become connected into this promise of the Messiah. Now, are they to stay then distinct from these people? We don't have to be rhetorical anymore. It's already kind of entered the world of weird casualty and sermons. I get it. I'm far away from my notes and I'm scared to death up here, so help me out. No. Are they to stay separate? Separate? No. That's the implication. That us, 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 Ephesians 1, 1 through 13, you, 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 verse, chapter 2, verse 14, now we all have a bond of peace. That the image Paul draws is that while all of these relationships to God are true and good, there also must be these tie-ins now between Gentile and Jew, that there comes to be this intrinsic web of relationship in and out to and from all of these people grow to one another and love one another, develop care and relationship for one another. Do you see what I mean here? So then, what becomes the determining factor over how strong or healthy this type of relationship is? Think of it like a spider web. What determines how strong the spider web is? Well, how many bonds do you have connected within this model? In Paul's vision, a good, thriving, healthy church has far more of these ties. Yes, every single person should be connected to Jesus. That's inevitable. That's what we live, breathe, eat, sleep, do. But if all we do is connect people to Jesus, but never connect people to one another, we will never be the thriving church that Paul envisions. 
Because Paul sees these bonds bridging gaps of race and division and all of these other things that come together for him. And if that's not clear, go to chapter 4 where he moves gears to start talking about what we do because of our relationship with Jesus. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore I, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthy in the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the, and there's the word, bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is above all and now through all and in all. Paul sees all of this complexity coming into one and bonding together through Jesus. Or jump to the end of this chapter in chapter 4, verse 25. So therefore, putting away lying, speak truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, uh, he is to do honest work within his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You are sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you. Paul continues on in chapter 5 and the early part of chapter 6, going into then particular bonds that were a bit controversial in the world around him, wives and husbands, children and parents, masters and bond servants. But it's in chapter 6 then, at the very end of the book, where Paul gives his final kind of conclusion as to why he thinks we need to operate this way. Chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. And here's the key verse. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. So when Paul looks at the world, does Paul see any particular individual as his enemy? No. And by the way, there are some really horrible individuals that are quite literally killing Christians. And Paul looks at that and says, that person's not the enemy. Because what that person needs is a connection to Jesus and a relationship with Jesus' church. They're not the enemy. There are spiritual evil entities out there that are the enemy. How do we then wage war? Paul seems to say it's not through the systematic design, but it's through bonding together. That we actually find our strength and our unity in our linking together. Here's my point. A strong and thriving church seems to be less about systematic structure and far more about the constant forming bonds and strengthening bonds. And this is especially, this is especially true in a world increasingly marked by hurt and suspicion. You see, the ultimate beacon of hope of First Baptist Church's existence is not in our size or, or our building or our assets. 
the world could not care less about most of it. Hence why I say I'm the pastor at First Baptist, and most people say, where's First Baptist? People don't show up because they think, oh, wow, that's a really pretty building anymore. What people desire is this because they can't find it anywhere. And if we can figure this out, if we can show how we bond together in unity and invite people into those bonds to participate with those bonds, then the ultimate beacon of hope is a fully realized and actualized gospel that not only bonds us back to the creator, but bonds us in peace to one another. How do we become a healthy, thriving church? How do we become a church like Paul Visions? We simply link together meaning we establish and connect as many bonds as we can possibly connect within this community we call First Baptist. That's the health. That's the well-being of this church, and it's contingent upon our ability to link to one another. So how do we link? And I apologize. For, I, I say I apologize. I don't apologize for the cheesiness of it. This is what we're doing this year. So it's going to be cheesy. You're just going to have to embrace cheesiness. Okay? You, you understand? How do we link together? four things, and it's an acronym from the word LINK. It's in your bulletin. If you want to look at it, I'll, I'll put it up on the screen. It stands for Learn, Invite, Network, Kindle. The first two are all about forming bonds to people. The second two are all about strengthening and empowering those bonds with people. So the first thing we want to do is we want to learn. We want to retain information for the purpose of caring. It's not trivia night. Don't just learn things because it makes you feel smart. But learn people's names because there's something about caring for somebody when you know their name. Learn about their identity. Learn their fears, their aspirations, their dreams. Learn their birthday and send them birthday texts. Learn about people in this room. We averaged last year about 130. Man, I, this is not scientific by any means, but just kind of a pastoral observation. I think you should try to be able to look around this church and name 30 to 50 names just off the top of your head of people outside your family. Like you should know that, and if you don't, start learning. Learn, make connections, and then as you learn, invite. Extend offers for the purpose of relationship. Invite people, not just within these four walls, but invite them outside. Invite them to coffee. Invite them to lunch. Invite them to your house. Invite them to go watch a movie. Invite them to go to the basketball game. Invite them. Invite. Invite. Because if we want to do this right, I'm telling you, an hour on Sunday morning is not enough. Invite. Go. Experience bonds outside of these four walls. And as you do that, then we can start strengthening, net network the bonds. And when I say network, I don't mean some business sense, but, but think of network like an aspen grove. Trees all rooted into one another, all connected underneath the surface, meaning that we're connecting together for the purpose of stability and growth. That there's true care for one another, that we are always aware that when that one person hasn't showed up in three weeks, we know that we're to call them because we've networked with them. And then we kindle. Because here's the reality. If you have been set free and redeemed by the blood of Jesus, you have received the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. And that Holy Spirit has planted within you passions and desires and dreams of kingdom mission, means by which you can reach people in this world. And so often what we need is other people to come alongside us and light matches under it. To say, in you, I see 
someone who loves. I just want to challenge you to find. And we start kindling relationship and kindling passion. So we define it as igniting passion for the purpose of kingdom mission. This is what we're doing this year. Over the next few weeks, well, next Sunday is CR Sunday, but after that, I'm going to do a single sermon over each one of these four things just to kind of get a head start. And then throughout this year, we're going to do sermon series over all four of these subjects to really hone in on what we're trying to do. But in the meantime, here's how this plays out. You'll notice in the back there's a new awesome display that it says First Baptist Church, and then it says Linking Together. And there's these little hooks underneath the display. You can kind of make out the sense underneath about halfway down, and you'll see a link hanging from the hook. Here's the invitation. You are invited to link into this church, meaning find someone you can learn about. Find someone you can invite. Find someone you can network underneath the roots and garner stability and growth with. Find somebody that you can kindle something within them. And when you do that, take a link and hang it on the link. And then grab another one out of the basket and take it home as a prayer reminder because it's never one and done. We're always looking to link with someone else. Now here's how this plays out. Please, please, please do not just be like, I asked 45 people their name. I'm going to hang 45 links. Don't send a text to 65 people that are inviting them and say, I invited 65 people over text. No, no, no. It's when these events are actualized. Meaning when you ask someone their name, and then next Sunday morning, you come to church and they come to church and you walk straight up to them and you say, hello, by their name, that's a link. You learn something. You retained information for the purpose of caring. But when you invite somebody and you actually go have that coffee and you sit down and you, that's a link. When you network and you grow in your relationship with them and you sit down and you pray together, that's a link. So this might be strengthening bonds you already have. That might be easy. It might be forming bonds you've yet to have. But this is what we're going to be doing all year. Because what we ultimately want is more people to connect with their creator. But that means providing a place for them to connect right here. And that means we connect first and foremost together. We have to always remind ourselves the gospel is not just me to Jesus in unity. It is that. That is exactly what Jesus came to do when he gave his life on the cross and he died and he cast our sins as far as the east is from the west that whoever would put their faith in him would be set free. They would be forgiven. They would be granted full access to God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't end there. It is vertical and it is horizontal. We're focusing on the horizontal. So the question we land at is what do you need to do? Man, is this something that you're looking at and thinking, oh gosh, I am terrified. I don't even like talking to people. Then maybe the prayer becomes, God, help me find people I can connect with. Maybe it's, I just don't know if I have time. God, help me find time to connect with people because I need people like you. People to encourage me to live like you. The question becomes, how do you link? Maybe right now, just as we wrap up today, it's just to come forward in prayer and just say, God, this is what I want to set as my focus. I want to link this year. Let's pray. Father God, we're grateful that you have called us to be a church of community. That it's not just some structural means, and, and God, that's great, and we're thankful for what you've provided in that. But God, there's more. So God, I pray that as we think through what you are inviting us to, that you would make First Baptist this unique place 
totally in the portalis culture, that you would call us to link to one together, to, to one another together, and that we would see over the year that chain in the entryway grow as we recall what you're doing and what you're working right here in our church. And God, if there's anyone that they feel like they can't link to one another because they're still not even linked to you, God, would you give them the boldness to just step forward this morning to give their lives in full repentance to you?